Welcome to the Redemption's Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. It's good to see you. Uh, nothing like, just a couple technical difficulties. We'll pretend that didn't happen. If there was a, no live stream anymore, nobody but us would have even known that would happen. So soon it will just be uh, us. So I like that plug. Um, yeah, it's, it's good to see you. Uh, last week we started our new series, The Rebuild Over... Uh, the book of Nehemiah. I've, I've been excited about this book, and this this series is going to focus uh, on the front side. It's going to focus on uh, the heart of a godly uh, leader, and, and on the back side of the series, it's going to look closely at the soul of a true uh, biblical community. So I, I want to kind of keep a, a trajectory going for us, and keep in front of you that we're praying boldly that God does something through. Uh, this series, that through this series and, and what follows, really we're hoping and praying that, that new leaders will rise up, not out of their natural gifting or their uh, ability or their wiring or their, their competence or their persona alone, but out of a calling that is placed on their lives that maybe they realize it for the first time and that causes new leadership to kind of rise out of them. Uh, for a while, what we've seen is probably this idea that has permeated the church culture um, that only clergy, specifically paid, uh, are called. Maybe this idea that only pastors or international minister, missionaries or worship leaders are, are called, but when we search the, the pages of the scripture, that's actually not what we see. Like Jesus calls fishermen. Jesus calls regular believers just like you and me to do amazing, thing, amazing things in his community. And it's a beautiful thing to, to realize God calls unexpected people to do just unexplainable things. And I want that to be stirred inside of us. Ephesians 2 even kind of points out it this way, that we are his, Jesus' workmanship. And when we are saved, we're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If, if we're going to be people who take the Bible at face value, then that means that there are good works, things that you and I are called to, maybe ones that we don't even know yet, but God has created us for them. So we want to find those things and we want to walk into those together. The hope is that we'll have maybe a bigger vision over what God may be calling us to collectively and also individually together as a church. The hope is, is as well that maybe we'll stop thinking that the uh, only calling on our life is the basic character that a Christian is supposed to have. There's a weird thing that, that maybe the, the belief is that to be decent and kind and generous is the ceiling of your calling. And I just want to say that's definitely not the ceiling. There's much more to that. And I think God's going to lead some of us towards that. And that it's an exciting place to to be. Now, in chapter one of Nehemiah, we won't recap very much, but we have to understand just a couple things. Uh, we saw that someone came to Nehemiah, possibly his actual brother, we're not 100% sure with the original language, came to Nehemiah to give him an update about Jerusalem, his people, Israel. Over 50 years ago, uh, the Babylonians had invaded Jerusalem. They basically tore it down, sent all the people into to exile. There, there's nothing left. And, and now when the update comes, what, what Nehemiah finds is they're still in peril. Uh, the walls are still t- torn down. The city is still destroyed. Other uh, attempts to rebuild ha- had, had happened and none of them worked. The people are in greater danger now and more shame really than they've ever been. And when Nehemiah gets this news that things have not gotten any better at all, the text says that he is heavily grieved and, and he is burdened by that news that he gets. And Nehemiah reacts in that burden with what we talked about last week, emotion and action this balance 
of the two. So he begins to, for four entire months, weep and more. This is the emotional component of his response to the burden, but he also prays and fasts for those months as well. This is what we'll call the first part of his action. Now, wrap your mind around that. His burden led to consistent prayer. What's the longest you've ever prayed about something? He, he didn't pray for four minutes. He didn't pray for an accumulation of four hours, not even four days or four weeks. He prayed consistently and persistently for four entire months about the burden that God had placed on his heart about his people and Jerusalem. Now, this doesn't mean that he was, oh, in this spot where he had no responsibilities and, oh, Nehemiah, like, he doesn't have a life like me. He just got to lock himself in a door and weep and cry and pray. No, no, no. Like, he still had to be a human being. He had to go to work. He had to live life. He had to take care of stuff on his own. But during those four months of living his life, there was regular pursuit of prayer through the burden that God had given him. What we'll call this is an ongoing dialogue of, of prayer. Uh, reminding God of his character, reminding God of his promise, reminding God of his covenant with the people, and then also just really clearly asking God, will you work? Will you intervene? Will you, will you allow a way to rebuild Jerusalem? Now, this text was meant for, we used it in a way to try and kind of uh, identify what to do with our burdens, what we didn't want to do uh, is all of a sudden make you go on a burden hunt. Oh, you, there's no burden? You don't have one? Oh, there must be something wrong. Like, that's not what we're trying to do is get you to go find one. What we're trying to do is connect how your burden may be your calling and then also equip ourselves that if you feel a burden from God, now you know what godly action looks like towards it because you may not have one now, but at some point, you probably will. So this week we'll find out uh, what, else he, what else he did after this. Now we leaned heavily in the, in the first text on the idea of becoming a prayer first people last week. L learning that the most powerful first step that you can do is to pray when burdens come, right? And, and what we'll see through this is that is where you begin in burden and calling, but that doesn't mean that it's the only thing that you do with your burden or, or, or calling. In other words, prayer is where we start and what we continue to do, but prayer is not all that we do with our burdens. Our actions will normally follow. Sometimes a consistent pattern of prayer, it takes us to get to the action point in the moment where we are called to act. Now, what we we will do is watch four months of praying, four months of fasting, four months of weeping, four months of mourning. It leads Nehemiah to this spot, and this is where action begins to churn in him. So uh, we'll look at Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 uh, through 8 uh, this week. I'll do my best to say some of the names right, but I, I probably won't on all of them. So in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence and the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Uh, then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Right? What do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Verse 6, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? 
So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river so that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, oh, and for the house that I shall occupy." And the king granted me what I asked, for the, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. As we mentioned before, Nehemiah engaged in four months of prayer, reminding himself of who God is uh, and asking God to intervene and help Jerusalem, uh, but a prayer uh, for God to work and help the situation for Nehemiah and for us. We have to understand these types of prayers are often loaded endeavors because it often leads to a time or a moment where God will then ask you to do something about what you're praying about. This means that prayer often leads to a God-ordained moment where you get a chance to act. That, that also means that uh, prayer isn't always safe and worry-free for the prayer because situations normally arise after our prayers. Uh, when we end up praying for a while and then God gives a holy moment for us to walk into and see the prayers answered, what that does is it causes a pretty scary moment of, oh no, here we go, you're calling me to do something. What do I mean by that? At times we can pray these idealistic prayers where we pray and then magically and seamlessly uh, we kind of expect God to just easily fix what we prayed about, right? We, we threw up the prayer, prayers comes up, blessing goes down, I didn't have to do anything, I just pray and he fixed it all. Where Everything just kind of gets right after the prayer. And it is true that God absolutely can answer our prayers outside of us doing anything, but that really isn't how things happen most of the time in real life, though. Are you still following? Since we are the hands and feet of the Lord here on earth, when we pray for God to redeem, for him to intervene, for him to help, for him to fix things, for him to do things, God often through his sovereignty and his will will then line up a moment where we can take actions toward that end with him. That's a scary moment. Again, I'll press further. We can tend to pray in a way that says, God, will you fix this for us? And he says, yeah, yeah, sure. Let's go about this where, where I fix it through you though not for you. Let's do it that way instead. And that is anxiety stirring, to say the least at times. Our persistent prayers, waiting upon the Lord and asking for his help leads often again to that holy ordained moment where we get to take action. And at that moment, it can be terrifying. This is what happened for Nehemiah in the text that we read. Everything led to a moment of action. That moment of action pretty overwhelming. We skipped over it last week for time's sake, uh, but at the end of chapter one, it just throws in this random detail at the very end. It says, Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king. This is King Xerxes, right? When you're having a burden, you're often asking, well, what has God put in my hand and where am I situated to walk into this burden? So Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer wasn't a, a menial position by any means. A cupbearer is a highly trusted official who served the king uh, personally, and it was a person of honor and importance because of their proximity and service to the king. They normally helped the king stay safe, especially by cupbearer tasting their wine at times to make sure that they wouldn't get, that the king wasn't going to be poisoned and to make sure kind of the, the chain of food wasn't marred with because often people inside the king's court would kill the king. 
So the cupbearer had this position of proximity to the king and influence to the king because he was so close. And in this position uh, to protect the king and have influence with the king, God, through his sovereignty, opens up a moment where he's going to ask him to act. Now, the text says during the month of uh, Nisan, Nisan, when they had their New Year's celebration, four months after Nehemiah had got the news about Jerusalem, he served the king wine. Four months, all of it led to then, he serves the king wine. Up to this point, Nehemiah had completely kept his, his emotion uh, hidden and his grief and his sadness hidden from the king. But on this day, he no longer was able to hide his emotion or what was going on from the, the king. So some have speculated, okay, Nehemiah waited these four months. And it was a calculated moment and he, and he chose to, this is the day that I'm going to show my sadness to the king. So uh, imagine all of a sudden he pours this cup of wine, he goes before the king, he's like, and like, and he sets it before him, the king doesn't notice, he's, again, but that, that's not at all probably what he did in that moment. Like, I can't imagine that's actually what happened. This moment in this month is the Persian New Year, which also lined up with Israel's New Year as well. So imagine a, a big party where people for a month are celebrating their joy and their prosperity. Things are good. Right? We have food. Look at our kingdom. Our people are well. We're laughing. We're having a great time. They're reveling in how good things were for them. Imagine you're at that party and they're all kind of stirring and look at how great things are for us. This is awesome. High five. But you know that things are not like that for your people. Your people are decimated. Your homes are piles of rocks. Your temple is, is a bloodstained shell that you don't have access to. All has been lost. All these people are celebrating, and you are crushed inside at that moment. I believe in that moment he couldn't contain the sorrow anymore. The duality between what they were experiencing and what he was experiencing was just too painful. He couldn't hold it in anymore, and the king saw it. So the king said this, Why is your face sad seeing that you're not sick? Imagine the highest person in the land saying that to you. What's wrong with your face? You're not sick. Uh, it's nothing but sadness of the heart. What's wrong with you? And right then, Nehemiah, the text says, was very much afraid. Right? They didn't add that as a, as a detail into like maybe to keep you interlocked. He was terrified in that moment. Right? This is a moment, uh, the holy moment that we had discussed earlier that prayers had led him to, but we have to wrap our minds around why was Nehemiah so scared in that moment? Well, King Artaxerxes has already killed his own brother in a long series of events after his father was killed in his own chambers, right? So um, kings and bloodshed and murder, like it, they weren't reluctant to kill anybody, okay? So he, the, the king already had kind of a, a storied uh, thing going on where, where you could kind of catch him wrong and, and he would take your life. Uh, but then the cupbearer on top of that was supposed to be the reflection of the radiance of the king, right? You're supposed to show the, the goodness and the glory and as someone who's serving him, you're supposed to be like happy and smiles and you show everybody my king is so good and look how happy I am to be able to serve him. So in this moment when Nehemiah is showing sadness, what is that display about the king? Why is he, why is he all sad? Like the, the king's great. What, what's going on here? The, the king could have easily taken this as, as a personal offense uh, as if his magnificence is being diminished by Nehemiah, that's another. But even more worrisome is this, Nehemiah, Nehemiah is charged with keeping the king safe. That is his main job. 
You are trusted. You're going to keep me safe. You're going to make sure I'm not poisoned. You're not going to. You're going to make sure I'm not attacked. You're going to make sure I'm I'm safe in my my chambers. Remember, Nehemiah's own dad was killed in his own chambers. But Nehemiah or uh, King Artaxerxes' own dad was killed in his own chamber before. Nehemiah is charged with keeping this king safe, making sure that he was okay. It could have been very plausible that the king interpreted the poor countenance of Nehemiah as, oh, he's got a grudge against me. Oh, he doesn't want to protect me. The the king's own dad, remember, he was killed. It's very possible that the king would become paranoid like many kings did and go, oh, you don't have my best best interest in mind anymore. I'm going to kill you and get a better cupbearer who smiles for me. It's a terrifying moment back then. And that's why the text says that he was very much afraid, and that wasn't an exaggeration. Nehemiah knew that he was on a razor's edge, and things could go either way for him. He had no idea what was going to happen. And even the question that the king says, and when we know the bigger story, is a little bit more ominous. Why is your face sad if you're not sick? What's wrong with you, Nehemiah? This isn't, this isn't what I hired you for. In that, in that moment, Nehemiah has a choice, a very scary choice of what to do. Do I try and do damage control, right? He, he, he's frustrated with me. Do I just try and clean it up? Do I, do I try and not push my luck any further? Do I try and back away from the situation and smile and smooth it over uh, to, to make sure that, that nothing comes bad out of this? Or do I press forward and press my luck in this situation, believing that this scary moment might be it? It may be the moment that God wants to use to answer my prayers for the last four months. Catch this, the entire four months of praying for opportunity and God to work could have led to this moment where Nehemiah goes, nah, forget it. It's fine. Where he goes, no, 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 the, the, the fear is too great. Uh, the, the, the worry is too great. Uh, the, the consequence is too great. He could have backed away and said, I'm not going to take action and run the other way. This is where we learn just a, a, a clear thing about leadership leadership, godly leadership, which many of you have in you, whether you know it or not, godly leadership takes courage, right? It takes courage. To step out into your calling takes courage. To step into what God is wanting to do through you and in you, whether it's evangelizing to your neighbor or your coworker or being faithful in the world is just a dumpster fire. All the things that we're called to to see the kingdom come in our lives takes courage to do because the whole world is pressing against the vein of what God wants to do. It takes courage. Now, we have to wrestle with this. So often our modern culture, they get really bitter, including proclaiming Christians all the time. And they lash out, blaming everyone else for a burden that they see or or, or feel or or perceive, right? They they should fix this. They should do this. Oh, I'm outraged. I'm offended. But here's here's the reality. They're so offended and they're so bitter and they're so upset, but they don't actually have the courage and compassion to do anything on their own. That's not godly leadership. Godly leadership says go in even when it's scary. Press forward, even when there's fear, even when there's anxiety, even if there is worry. The the continual phrase we see in the Old Testament, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. This isn't just for the warrior who's going against 3,000 people. This is for the everyday person when when a God-ordained conversation with your neighbor comes that you've been waiting for and you want to run the other way. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Do not turn. It takes courage. 
Because to walk in faith to God and walk in your calling will absolutely be heavy. You'll be over your head and you'll be scared at times. It will require a courage, hear me, that only prayer and God can build in you. That's why we pressed being a prayer first people so hard last week. What did four months of prayer do? It built courage, boldness, power, and the ability to press forward in Nehemiah. Four months of prayer built something that the four months of not praying would not have built. Do you, do you understand that? Without that four months, he would not have, have that. So when opportunity came knocking, he, he didn't chicken out and run the other way. It's only through the courage that was built in prayer that this happened. Mind you, the prayer didn't take away his fear. The text says, I am terrified. He was still scared. He was still terrified in the moment, but prayer did produce in him a confidence in God that when power and calling in a situation met, that he didn't cut bait and run the other way. If you want a point from this, point one would be this. Prayer cultivates courage in hard situations. We have to understand that more. Prayer cultivates it. It creates it. It breeds courage in hard situations. Are are there missional situations or things in in the world or in your life that you keep wanting to, you kind of feel like, man, I I just, I wish I wasn't so scared in, in that. What this book in Nehemiah teaches you is when you are scared and when you don't have courage, go into a moment where you can pray to build that up. It's not only certain people who like to fight who have courage. It's people who pray. Verse three and four, I said to the king, remember, he says, hey, what's wrong with your face? You're not sick. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Verse four, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? What do you want? Nehemiah pressed forward instead of backing out of his burden and calling, telling the king why he was sad. And notice, he had one moment to run away, and the first moment he didn't. And he tells him why he's sad. But notice Nehemiah is extremely smart on what he says. Notice he doesn't say, hey, I'm sad about Jerusalem. He says, I'm sad about the place where my father's graves lie in ruin. And the gates are destroyd there. Remember, King Artaxerxes' own father was murdered not too long ago. His father had his own grave. And what he's doing is he's connecting to the king in a way that may generate some compassion back for him. He's not lying, he's being wise. And the king responds by saying, "Nehemiah, what are you requesting from me? What exactly are you asking? Make it plain to me. What do you want, Nehemiah? What's going on? And again, this gives him another moment, right? The first moment, hey, why does your face look like that? You're not sick. That's moment number one to run. And then he asks, okay, Nehemiah, what do you actually want from me? That's number two where he could have run. What are you asking? What do you want? Make it plain. Another moment of possible doubt and fear. He could have decided, man, I don't want to press my luck anymore. I'm out. We have to dig closer into the situation to understand why this was a new and even greater moment of tension for him. In the book of Ezra, um, 
So in the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, were, were, are, they're actually one book. They're not supposed to be two. Uh, they're, they're two different people who tried to rebuild Jerusalem. So, so it actually should be, uh, in some Bibles have Ezra slash Nehemiah in the book. But in the book of Ezra, earlier on, uh, another guy went to go grab people and try and rebuild Jerusalem. And as they're going and as they're getting this thing uh, off the ground, King Artaxerxes sees what they're doing and he decrees powerfully that the rebuild of Jerusalem Jerusalem needs to stop right then and no one will continue anymore. And he goes even further. He says the rebuild of Jerusalem is evil and anyone who, who attempts such a thing is, is giving an act of aggression against my kingdom, Persia. I see what you're doing. Stop now. It's evil. It's an act of war if you continue. Right? It's a pretty definitive like, so it's like a no-no or kind of a partial no. Like it's a, it's a definite no. Stop. Don't do this anymore. The king has already delivered his decision about Jerusalem, and he did it decisively, and he did it powerfully, and he did it emphatically. So when the king asked Nehemiah, what are you requesting? We have to know that Nehemiah is requesting that the king change his mind about a decision he's already made. Kings don't do that very much. I need you to change your mind. Nehemiah, if he pressed the issue about Jerusalem's ability to, to rebuild, is basically saying, King Artaxerxes, I want you to realize that you made a bad decision earlier, and I want you to heed my words, your cupbearer's words, and I want you to reverse your wrong decision from before and, and let me rebuild this place. Nehemiah was asking for permission to do something here that the king didn't want, and he's asking for the king to reverse a major decisive decision. Can you see how, like, in our world, we'd be like, hey, man, stay in your lane. Don't say that. Don't ask. Don't ask. He's going to get mad. Like, it's a big ask that he's about to give. Then at the end of verse 4, it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I love this. As if Nehemiah realizes fully how the four months have built to this. So in his mind, he prays, God, this is it. Remember your promise, God. Remember your character. Remember your people. Give me words in this moment and give me your favor. Help me in this. This dialogue with God and Nehemiah over Jerusalem had been such, that this ongoing dialogue that, that Nehemiah just flips back into the mode. Okay, right there, right then, I'm going to give one more prayer up. God, help me. Let's do this. Let's go. Give me wisdom and your power. He's just used to, to going in and out of prayer over this Issue. Oh, that we'd be a prayer people who have an ongoing dialogue like that with God. Right? In our pride, so many times, like, okay, this is the moment. God, I don't need you. I got this. No, I praise again. God, help me. This is it. Let's go. Nehemiah then makes the request. If it pleases the king, if I found favor with you, would you let me go back to the place of my father's graves and rebuild it? Notice the details. Notice the wisdom again that God had helped him with. Nehemiah again doesn't say, will you let me go build, rebuild Jerusalem? He says, Judah, the land of the fathers. Nehemiah is kind of wisely giving the king a way out where he can save face. Do you understand that? With these words, it's not so blatant that the, that the king is, is reversing all the things. He, he's letting him kind of save face. And there's a, a lesson maybe for the more brash of us here, including my, myself at times. Courage does not mean being rude, brash, or difficult. Courage is just a choice not to run when things get scary. Nehemiah displayed that really well. I'm going to navigate this wisely. I'm not going to run when it's scary, but I'm also not going to make it worse than it needs to, to be. And look what happens. The king asks, 
how long will you be gone and when will you return? Past one, then moment two of tension, then moment three. How, how long is this going to take, Nehemiah? So it's great news that the king has let him get through two markers already. He hasn't lost his temper. He hasn't killed Nehemiah. He hasn't hurt him. But instead, he asked this question back, uh, how long will this whole deal take you, Nehemiah? And this is what stirred in my mind this week for me personally as I've thought. Uh, this was another moment that was make or break for Nehemiah, and it consisted on plans. What do you think um, the king would have done if Nehemiah responded? Remember, he goes, how, just how long do you think this is going to take? What do you think the king's response would have been if he goes, yeah, I'm not really sure. I hadn't got that far. I hadn't thought through that. I, you know, I don't know. I was just hoping you didn't kill me. Or even, even here's the other one. Like, how do you think King Artaxerxes would have responded if he said, you know, I'm just going to like keep my plans clear and I'm just going to go on faith and we're just going to see like where God takes it. And, you know, like I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to like pin my God down sort of thing. So like, well, we'll kind of, we'll kind of see. The king says, I want a plan and I want to now. And in the text, in the original language, he he says it pretty strongly. I'll accept nothing less than a plan. If this is such a big deal, how long is this going to take? And this brings us to point number two, the one that has pressed on me personally. Prayer cultivates a plan of action. If we're not just asking God to fix things, we're asking for plans and wisdom. Here's what this could look like. If you pray for a while over something, open word, read the word, to see the Father, and then you begin to pray over your burden. And then, and then here's the, the, the part that's really helpful. Then you just sit there quietly, going, God, will you help me see what to do? See, the hard thing for us a lot of times is maybe we'll read our, our, our morning plan and we'll throw up a prayer, and then we are out the door. God, you got your seven minutes. But in four months, he began to cultivate a plan, and there was moments of silence where God could speak back. This is what I want you to do. This is what you should be mindful of. And you're going like, how does that work? I don't have that voice in my head. Normally, if you will pray and ask and wait, your thoughts will begin to navigate. And you could see like, actually the Holy Spirit may be leading you towards some of those. The silence in the prayer is the moment to create a plan. We have to be okay with creating that moment of silence to make the plan though. This is a weird thing that has maybe happened um, Believers seem to pit the idea of faithfulness and planning against each other, right? As if the planner is the Pharisee. Oh, you're a Pharisee. You're a legalist. You just have no faith in God. And on the flip side, it believes that the person of faith is just lazy and won't make a plan, which sometimes is very true. But Nehemiah shows us another way, though. He prays persistently and he plans he doesn't float to one side or the other. I will plan and I will pray. I will balance both faith and wisdom, faith and planning. And Nehemiah commits himself to this for months. Let's make a plan. If he did not do this, the wording in the text leads us to believe. If he had no plan or came in and goes, like, you know, I don't know, we'll see. It leads us to believe that the king would have said, no. No, you ain't doing it. Church, this is part of the, the reason this week that, that, that on Realm, we sent out a request for you to pray and fast with the elders. 
right? We don't want to just preach this and not do this. We want God to give us as a church clearer vision. We, we want to spend calculated time in prayer where the Holy Spirit will, will stir a Holy Spirit-empowered plans in us. We want to do the hard work of laboring with God over his wise plans for us and have lavished them so much in prayer that we're courageous. And when the moment opens up, we got a plan and we can go. That's why we ask you to do that. And that's probably why we'll be asking you a little bit more to do that because we believe that prayer will build courage and a plan for us. And we want you to be a part of that with us, not just us doing that. Then back to Nehemiah. He gave the, the king a time frame. He thought through it. He'd done the work and, and it pleased the king. And then watch as courage, planning, and boldness all come together in this like, whoa moment. He not only had a time frame, he had a specific plan, and he asked the king for the things that he needed for the plan. He asked for a letter for the governors of the provinces so he could have safe passage there, and he asked for a letter to Asaph uh, to allow him to use the king's own forest for trees to rebuild the walls, temple, and the homes there. Are you seeing the audacity of what just happened? Three moments to chicken out. He doesn't, and then he presses forward where most of us would be going, ah, that's too much, don't ask, don't ask. He asks the king, will you change your mind and allow me to rebuild Jerusalem? And then he asks the king to risk tension with the governors around that he's king over by giving Nehemiah a letter, basically telling all those other people that Nehemiah is untouchable, and whether they like it or not, they can't do a thing about it. And we'll find out later in the book, that angered a ton of pe people. Politically, this is a huge ask. Will you give me letters to make them not touch me because they ain't going to like this? He says, yes. And then he asked as well for trees. This is loot. This is money. This is means. This is cash. Will you give me what I need to do this? He'd ask, King, will you change your mind? Will you protect me? And will you pay me? We do all of these things that, that I need here. And the king, to those three over-the-top asks, the king says, yeah. To which Nehemiah responds, the good hand of God is upon me. There's something that my MC has been talking about a little bit, and I've tried to keep us paying attention to it for a while. When we pray, and when we see God's hand, we've seen people healed in beautiful ways, ways that have surprised doctors. We've seen, we've seen relationships reconciled. We've seen God's hand move. When we see his hand move, thank him for it and declare, oh, it was not me. God did that. Why? It stirs worship and gratitude in your God. Because what do we do when we go through and we execute a plan and it works out? You're like, well, maybe God did it, but you know, like, I'm pretty awesome. I might have done it too, though. No, no, no. Nehemiah immediately, the hand of God is upon me. He did this. Uh, T.J. Betts, a, a theologian. I just wanted to read a book from a guy named T.J. Um, he, he writes this. Just like with Esther, it was the Lord who brought Nehemiah before a king for such a time as this. It was the Lord who brought Nehemiah to his important position as cupbearer. It was the Lord who orchestrated that Nehemiah would receive the report he did from his brother concerning Jerusalem. It was the Lord who heard Nehemiah's prayers. It was the Lord who gave Nehemiah the opportunity and courage to reveal his concerns and needs to the king. It was the Lord who moved the king's heart and directed his course of action. 
It was the Lord who provided for all of Nehemiah's protection and provision to carry out the mission. And it was the Lord who led Nehemiah hundreds of miles from Susa back to his home and the people of Jerusalem. Nehemiah gives credit to where credit is due. Immediately, it was the hand of the Lord. God did that. Church, here's what we find. There's incredible power in, in these, these words are, are, are intentional. There's, empi- there's incredible power in our calling. And believe it or not, God has called us, all of us, on his mission. Not the ones who, who only have it together or, or the ones who did a Bible reading plan this year. Or like any, He's called, if, if you were a follower of Christ, he has called all of us onto his mission. And there, there's no opting out. That is who we are as his children so in these realms of callings, what I want us to be see, seeing in here is, is that he has called some of us to plant churches, some of us to start nonprofit businesses, some of us to radical hospitality in our neighborhood where you know that people are being prayed for because you're praying for them and greeting them and telling them that you love them and you're praying for their hearts. Some of us have been called to, to join the PTA to help the schools. Some of us are called to foster children or love and help people who are fostering children. Some are, are, are called maybe to start their, their local if gatherings here to minister to ladies. Some are called to, to personal evangelism. Some are called to disciple people here. Some are called to create and foster new ways of evangelism that we have never thought to do before. There's calling here. What Nehemiah shows us is this, whether we're walking in the general call to make disciples or in the specific call, like a burden may bring upon our our hearts, the reality is the same. You're going to face extremely scary moments if you want to walk in your calling. You're going to get worried about losing your friends, about what it's going to do with your family or your comfort or your finances. You are going to lose your personal time. Right? Some of that, guys, some of us guys are maybe the worst about this. That is our idol. Some of your personal time you will not have if you walk in your calling. You're going to lose some of your freedoms. You're going to lay them down. You're going to worry about rejection, about persecution. You're going to worry about being that guy and being canceled. There are a million reasons to worry and run from your calling, which means that there are a million reasons to begin praying to build courage and a plan in your calling. It's the only way. You will not have enough bravado in you and I will not have enough bravado in me to not pray and walk in our calling and see God move. We're called into beautiful things, which just means that we're gonna have to spend some time building the spiritual muscle of courage that comes only through what we'll call the sweat equity of prayer. Right? There's no steroids to get you further. We want to pray to be built up in courage in God to make Holy Spirit-empowered plans, not plans on our own accord, and then see God do mighty things in this. And here's just my basic challenge. There, there are a couple things in the Bible where God just goes, if you don't believe me, test me. This would be the test for, for my heart and yours. If you do not believe that he can build courage and a plan in you to see more than you ever thought possible would be done, then pray. Pray and fast and pray and fast, and see if he doesn't bring out courage where you didn't know it existed. See if you commit yourself to it, if he won't radically increase your courage and your vision moving forward. I'd love to see that happen in us. We've been super honest about COVID and what it's done, and it's taken away so much from people, but here's the thing for for us as the people of God we need to understand. It's given us a moment that we have never had in our generation before. 
The world needs the gospel. They need the light of Christ. They need to see something differently. We, I wonder how many times in the past we've been inviting people to church and they won't come and they won't come and they won't come and this is telling us, do you know the reason they won't come? Because you look just like they do. So we pray and we build courage. Change my heart. Change my ability to go back in and invite and love people again. Change my heart towards the things that you're putting on my heart that terrify me. Change my heart. Build me up. And let me see you work beautifully. That, that's the hope. A ragtag small group of Columbia, Missouri, who began to devote themselves to prayer, God threw courage into the mix and made plans. And we just said, man, look at what he's done. Matthew 28, verses 19. The Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age we maybe accidentally pigeonhole this verse to only be for um, like street walking evangelism or different things like that. But these were Jesus's last words to the entire church, which are all who follow him before he ascended to the right hand of the father. Go therefore, which in the original language means as you live, as you go, as you work, as you parent, as you do all of the things that you do, as you do those things, make disciples, baptize people, teach them what I've commanded you and, and move forward the, the, the calling of the church. All of those are language of calling. As you live, live in your calling. And what resonates deeply, I think, for me today about that, and here's his promise, when you walk in your calling, even when it's scary, behold, I'll be with you till the end of the age. I'll be there with you. When you feel anxious about it, when you feel unequipped, when you feel scared, when you want to cut bait and run, when you just get selfish and go, that requires more than I want to give, know that Jesus is with you. And his Holy Spirit will see to that, that you are never alone, even in the moments that get scary. It doesn't mean that they won't be scary anymore. It means that the King of Kings is with you, even in the middle of your fear and the things that you are a little bit worried about. This is the beauty of our faith. Jesus has not only stepped down into our creation to make a way that we could be reconciled to God for the problem of our sin. He hasn't just done that through his life and death and resurrection, even though that would be more than enough. He has done that, and even now, even after that, he is with us. The Spirit of God is with us, ministering, giving us the understanding that Jesus is with us and will never leave us or forsake us, even in the moments that are difficult. The prayer is that we will understand this. We have his comfort. We have his wisdom. We have his courage. And, and hear this. We have his hand and we have his power. Man, if we believed that, how beautiful would that be? Again, the, the hope is that we would be stirred and excited by this reality. Our God has come to us. Uh, he is with us in the storm and one day he will return again. I'd love to see us just... Get into, the, get into the mix of things until he does, though. The question maybe for, for you and, and me to ask is really what plans is God trying to stir in you that you won't be silent enough to hear? Maybe that's what God's saying. Maybe he's asking you, what does it look next? Uh, what does it look like next to move into your burden? What does it look like to begin to build a, 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 a system of, of courage because you have prayed more? What does it look like next? That, that may be the thing that God just wants to press in all of us. And here, here's my hope. 
I do not want to walk us in shame. Great, you're telling me I just got to devote all this time to prayer and that's how I can get courage. I've been terrible at that. That's not the hope. The hope is that we would be stirred to see God is going to use us in amazing ways and we have a, a, a well of courage that we never thought possible and plans that we would never come up with on our own if we will pray. The hope is that that will churn us and excite us. Our God has called us, equipped us. He will give us courage and he will give us plans. I'd love to see what he'll do with that. Garrett, will you come back up? We're going to take communion today. We want to remember in all of these things, it's not just what we do, it's who we are and what we've been made. It's what Jesus has done that we circle all of this around. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he is betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you, right? This is about what he did. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is only because of what he's done that we have been reconciled. It's only because of what he has done that we can even pray and the Father will hear us. It is only because of what he's done that we can be built up in courage and have the Spirit help make empowered plans in us. We want to come and take and be built up. No matter what the last weeks have looked like, no matter what the COVID era has looked like, no matter what the weekend has looked like, there's a sacrifice for those whose faith is in Jesus. His body and blood is for you. So we would say in worship in these last couple of songs, we would ask you to take, remember the beauty of what he has done. Anyone is free to take. We have the cups and the entryway if you did not grab one. Will you stand and pray with me before we worship today?